Will you join me in prayer? Oh Lord, my God, you have multiplied your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. Oh, how we rejoice that you will not restrain your mercy from us. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I can attest, I am poor and needy this morning. But thank you, Lord, that you are taking thought for me right now. You are my help. You are my deliverer. I pray that you will not delay this morning to come and be here with us and open our eyes to see these wonderful things in Psalm 40. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've come to Psalm 40. We are almost at the end of book one of Psalms, which um, encompass Psalm 1 through 41. And these are mainly Psalms spoken by David individually rather than by Israel as a nation. So he describes things that he goes through personally, making them applicable to situations that we face. And our lesson title is A Song for the Waiting. Waiting is a common theme in the Psalms. We see the word wait in many of the early Psalms where David cries out, for my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Those are selections from Psalm 37 and 38. Heaviness and anguish may fill our hearts, but hope comes from the Lord. That's what David expressed in Psalm 40. The opening words are, I waited patiently. Now, not being a Hebrew scholar, I went to Blue Letter Bible for help, and I expected to find a word for wait and a word for patiently. But I discovered that instead, David uses the same word twice. Wait, wait. The Hebrew is kava, kava. And this word can be translated to hope or to expect. So literally what David is saying is waiting I waited or hoping I waited. This is a persevering, ongoing waiting with hope, knowing that God will answer. So last week in Psalm 22, we saw the desperate cries of the suffering. We saw then this dramatic turn, and then it was followed by praise for God's deliverance. And in Psalm 40, we see kind of a reverse structure. It begins with praise and proclamation, and then it ends with prayer and lamentation. So in the first half, David testifies to God's merciful rescue, his past grace for him as he waited. And then in the second half, David pleads, more grace, save me again, Lord. So if Psalm 22 was a theology of suffering, Psalm 40 is a theology of waiting. What is a song for the waiting? Here's my summary of the song, and you have this on your handout. Because God's faithfulness and steadfast love is rock solid, we can remember his past grace, praise him and point others to Jesus, to put their trust in Jesus, and then prayerfully wait with confident hope for more grace in the future. Now the original context for Psalm 40 David was expressing his praise for God's deliverance and his trust for future deliverance, but the writer of Hebrews reinterprets this psalm as spirit-inspired speech from the Messiah, God's Holy One, Jesus. So we're gonna walk through the psalm first from the perspective of David and Israel and apply it to us, 
And then we're gonna see how it points to Jesus in a really beautiful way. So number one on your sheet, past grace. Because God's faithfulness and steadfast love is rock solid, we remember his past grace. Now the author of this psalm is King David. He waited patiently and he was heard. And so he delights in five consecutive past actions of God when he waited. And number one, God inclined to him. Now the Hebrew word here is interesting because it means to extend something outward and toward someone or something. And so God told Moses in Exodus 6, I will redeem you with an arm stretched out. That's what that means, to incline. Number two, God heard his prayer. And number three, God lifted him out of the pit. Now, all of us have had times in the slimy pits, haven't we? We don't know exactly what David's circumstance was. This was probably not a literal pit of mud. It might have been a life-threatening illness. It could have been a near-death battle experience. But like Paul's thorn in the flesh, because it's not identified for us specifically, we can ponder our own pits and we can identify with David here. It could have been a pit of his own making, a mess, a slimy pit, say, of his own sin or his own mess. But there are some pits that are outside of our control. Job says in Job 30, God has cast me into the mire and I have become like dust and ashes. Or Paul in 2 Corinthians 1 says this, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Whatever it was, David could not climb out. He was drowning, and without God's rescue, he would die. So for us too, I know that we can be in pits of desperation, but God hears our prayers, so call out for him for help. Number four, God set his feet on a rock. What a contrast here, from slime to solid rock. One source said, from the mire to the choir. I like that. God's rescue means that he can walk securely, and this was a great comfort to the people knowing that God had rescued their king. The Old Testament is full of stories of what happens when a king is in trouble or when they have no king. Do you remember how the book of Judges said that everyone did what was right in their own eyes? The people of Israel had a number of bad kings who led the people astray, did not lead them in paths of righteousness. Number five, God put a new song in his mouth. So notice here, after David has said, I, me, my, me, my, 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 this, is, this new song is a song of praise to our God. So David transitions here from his personal experience of God's merciful rescue to encouraging others to trust in God. So because God's faithfulness and steadfast love is rock solid, we remember his past grace, we praise him, and we point others to trust in Jesus. Number two on your outline is our responses. Now in this section we see some verbs that are past tense, some that are present tense, and some even pointing to the future. Verse three, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. That is something that we look forward to future as a result of praising him with a new song. 
Next is trusting. We see God's multiplied blessings in verses four and five. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. Did you notice a connection between verse three and verse four with the word trust? They put their trust in the Lord. He makes the Lord his trust. The blessing comes to those who have witnessed the Lord's deliverance and have put their faith in him. They've trusted that the Lord is for us and not against us. This is the blessed life that we saw back in Psalm 1. And we should eagerly and enthusiastically want this for everyone that we know. For the opposite is the path of destruction. Verse 5, you have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. Now these wonders are a reference to all that God has done. His past, miraculous, multiplied deeds on behalf of his people. And the thoughts here refer to God's plans on behalf of his people. And David includes himself here by using the word us. In the second half of verse 5, David erupts in praise to the Lord. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. The king's mission was to make God known. And so for us, like David, we cry out when we're in trouble. We wait. God rescues us. And then we tell others. We praise God publicly so that others can see what God has done for us so that ultimately they can put their trust in the Lord. They will fear the Lord and trust him. But there's another response. How should David express his gratitude? The usual response in the Old Testament times was that they would offer animal sacrifices. But we see in verses 6 through 10 that our, our obedience is our response to God. In verse 6, in sacrifice and offering you have not delighted. All these kinds of sacrifices and offerings that are mentioned here in Psalm 40 represent the entire sacrificial system. But God does not delight in them. God desires obedience more than sacrifice. We see another contrast here in verse 6. Sacrifices and offerings are contrasted with an open ear. But you have given me an open ear. That is what delights God. This word literally means ears you have dug out for me. And so David is saying that the Lord has dug holes in his skull for his ears so that he can hear clearly. Now, a number of years back, my mother-in-law's hearing had been deteriorating to the point where we thought we were going to have to get special technology for the phone so she could hear us because we couldn't carry on a conversation with her. And uh, it was, you know, very hard. You know, we thought, hearing aids, what is it going to be? And when she went to go have her ears examined, they found out that there was so much wax buildup in her ear, she couldn't hear because of the, it was blocked. And once that was removed, she could hear again. Now hear what David is saying, this open ear. It's a poetic way of saying that one has perfect hearing and perfect obedience to God's word. And oh, that we would have ears to hear and hearts to obey. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, the Lord laid out some laws for kings. To ensure that the king did not forget or change any of God's laws, he was supposed to write himself a copy. He was supposed to read it every day and actually then keep those commandments. Think with me for a minute, though, about the history of the kings of Israel. Saul was their first king. Did he have 
ears that were open or not? Not, right. In 1 Samuel 15, 22, after Saul had sinned, uh, Samuel came and said, has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. He was not saying that sacrifice was bad. No, I mean, sacrifice was commanded, but the heart's obedience was what was important. That was the important aspect of it. Sacrifice without sincerity of heart is not what God is after. And so in Romans chapter 12, Paul says we should offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Next king is David, the author of this psalm. Did he have open ears or not? I see some yes, I see some no. Yes and no is the right answer. Yes, his ears are open to the Lord, and he, he points us. He's a picture of Christ. So yes, his ears were open to hearing, and he delighted in God's commands. But we know from First and Second Samuel that David um, failed miserably, and his life, we don't see a sugar-coated view of his life. So his ears, in some ways, were not as open as they should be. Now, later kings also failed, but God's promises are sure. He would send the perfect king, the Messiah. And that then is what verse seven talks about. Verse seven and eight says, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Now this may be a reference to the Mosaic law and particularly, particularly to that portion that I referenced earlier in Deuteronomy where the king was supposed to write the law but this is more than just knowing what God commands. It's a Psalm 1 kind of delighting in doing it. And we know as believers that this is a work of the Holy Spirit as a law is written on our hearts and then he fuels our obedience. He fuels that fruit that he is producing in our lives. So verse 9 and 10, David proclaims the glad news of his deliverance. And he says it in many ways here. He says, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden. I have spoken. I have not concealed. And what has he proclaimed? He has proclaimed God's deliverance, God's faithfulness, God's salvation, and God's steadfast love. And we have to ask here, why would he or we even consider restraining our lips, hiding God's deliverance, or concealing God's steadfast love? Well, maybe it's because in order to proclaim God's rescue, we would have to explain about the slimy pit that we have been in. And it's embarrassing to admit our messy situations to others. It's hard to confess that we've struggled with, and then we fill in the blank. What sin or bad habit have you struggled with? But those of us who are saved should proclaim the good news. We should give thanks to God so that others will see and put their trust in the Lord. Someone sent me a question this week expanding on this, and that is, well, why would David tell the Lord that he had not restrained his lips and not hidden? And we're not told explicitly why he would have, but there might be a hint here as I thought about this. If we look at the word restrain, it's used twice. Did you notice that? It's used in verse 9 and it's used in verse 12. So God has saved him and David has not restrained his lips. 
but he's about to plead with God not to restrain his mercy from him. And so maybe David is already aware of a new crisis and reminding God of how he didn't keep quiet about his deliverance. And so please deliver again. And should we be surprised that David is in trouble again? No. We live in an evil, sinful world, don't we? And Jesus told us that in this world, we will have trouble, but take heart, because he has overcome the world. Number three, our present plea or prayer we see in verses 11 through 17. Because God's faithfulness and steadfast love is rock solid, remember his past grace, praise him and point others to place their trust in Jesus, and then prayerfully wait with confident hope for more grace in the future. Now David appeals to God's mercy. Verse 11, as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. God doesn't save us because we deserve it. And no, we can't save ourselves, and we can't preserve ourselves either. We appeal to God's character. Did you notice how many times that David calls out to the Lord, all caps in the section? He calls out to Yahweh, his covenant name. We rely on his mercy, his steadfast love, and his faithfulness. And the great news is that his mercies are new every morning. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness is great. It is eternal, and forever it will preserve us. And this is really great news because we keep getting stuck in pits throughout our lives. David did not restrain his lips, and so he expects God will continue to pour out mercy on him in his present situation. Next, David admits his failure. Verse 12, for evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. What a change of tone. What a change of circumstance here. He has fallen back into the pit. Sin has blinded him and overwhelmed him, and his heart is broken. Next, he pleads. He cries out for God's help. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Be pleased, be delighted, O Lord. Just as David delighted in God's merciful rescue, he's pleading with God to come quickly and do it again. Why? He says it's for God's pleasure. God delights to save us. We don't need to be afraid of coming to God over and over again, delighting in his mercy again and again. Do you remember when Israel demanded uh, of Samuel that he would appoint a king for them so they could be like all the other nations? Samuel responded like this. Fear not, you have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart, and do not turn aside after vain things which cannot profit or save, for the Lord will not cast away his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. John Piper said of this, he said, the rock-bottom foundation of our forgiveness and our fearlessness and our joy is the commitment that God has to his own great name. First, he is committed to act for his own namesake, and then for that reason, he committed to act for his people. And just one note here, this section of Psalms 
40, verses 13 through 17, is almost identical to Psalm 70, 1 through 5. And we're not sure why that is, but we know that these, you know, Psalm 40 stands alone as it is. All right? So, number four, future waiting with confident hope, verses 16 and 17. Because God's faithfulness and steadfast love is rock solid, remember his past grace, praise him, and point others to trust in Jesus, and prayerfully wait with confident hope for more grace in the future. Verse 16, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. In this exclamation, we see the true heart of David. He wants all to be able to seek the Lord and find their gladness in him, to love the salvation of the Lord. And then in verse 17, he says, as for me, I am poor and needy. Last week in Psalm 22, David said, I am a worm. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. So what sweet assurance it is for us that God thinks of us. This should remind us also of Psalm 8, where we learn that our awesome creator who just finger painted in the sky this great universe is mindful of us. Yes, because of his steadfast love, we can call out for rescue again and again because he takes mind for us. So we can say, do it again, Lord. Do it again, rescue me. Now last week, Charisse uh, referred to a three-story structure. And so now we're gonna go to the third story and see how this psalm points to Jesus. Last Sunday, Pastor Stephen preached from Acts chapter two and he pointed out beautifully that Peter learned to read his Bible from Jesus. And then Peter proclaimed in his sermon at Pentecost that David was a prophet, and knowing that God would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and he spoke about Jesus. So one of the clues that we see in Psalm 40 is in verse seven where David mentions this scroll. Who does this refer to? Well, in John five, Jesus said, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life but these are the very scriptures that testify about me. And in Luke 24, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Now in your lesson, you read Hebrews 10, and I'm gonna read part of that. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of, your book, of the book. The next question might be, but Psalm 40 verse six says you've given me an open ear and Hebrews says body. How do those relate? Well, early Greek translators substituted a body you have prepared for giving me an open ear, understanding that the ear was just representative of the whole body. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and he came incarnate, right, in flesh, in a human body for us. And why did Jesus come? Not to offer sacrifices. Jesus came to do what animal sacrifices could not do. He came to be the sacrifice for us. But in order to give his life, he had to come 
in human flesh. And that is the birth of our Savior Jesus, the incarnation. Now verses eight through 10 uh, of Psalm 40 describe the perfectly obedient open ear, the sinless life of Jesus. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Now Isaiah wrote about the Messiah's open ear in Isaiah 50. He said, the Lord has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. Jesus loved God's word. He heard God's word perfectly. He obeyed perfectly. He delighted in obedience to God and to his will. In John 4, he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And in John 8, he said, he's not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Hebrews 10 continues, behold, I have come to do your will. Now remember in the garden when Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done. Or Philippians chapter two, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we're gonna continue in Hebrews 10. And don't you love how the author of Hebrews just takes Psalm 40 and takes us to the gospel here? He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So Jesus came to replace that temporary, imperfect, sacrificial system that did not delight the Lord. We need a perfect sacrifice, Jesus, who satisfies, who satisfied all these kinds of Old Testament sacrifices and offerings that Psalm 40 mentions. The entire sacrificial system pointed to and is fulfilled by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. Millions of goats and lambs could never accomplish what Jesus, the Lamb of God, willingly did for us on the cross. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now look back at the opening words of this psalm. When Jesus was made sin for us, he did not just stretch out his arm to rescue us. He did not just incline to us. He actually got in the pit, bearing all the muddy slime of sin, all the sin of mankind. Isaiah 53 tells us he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And he cried, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in this pit? This word pit can be translated grave. Hebrews 5 tells us, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. God heard his cry 
and climbed to him and drew him up from the pit, raised Jesus from the dead, and he set him on the rock. And Jesus is the rock. He is the stone that, that the builders rejected. And when God draws us out of our pit, he sets us on Jesus, on the rock, where we are secure. It is finished. It is done. He is risen, and he is reigning at the right hand of the Father. And if you have the opportunity to share the gospel with someone, maybe you've told a friend or a neighbor that you're studying the Psalms, and you could say, here's what I learned from Psalm 40. You could, you could start out maybe in verse 12, and you could say, my sins have overtaken me. There is no way out. I'm just in this pit, this pit of destruction, and no one can save me except Jesus. But Jesus came, verse seven, he came, he was born to do God's will, and he lived a perfect life. We can see that in verses six through eight. His death, he entered that pit of destruction for us, taking our sin in his body, but he was resurrected. He's alive. God rescued him when Jesus cried out, and he raised him from the dead, setting his feet on the rock, and he will deliver you too if you cry out to him. He will deliver you from sin and death if you put your trust in him. And so perhaps you have not trusted Jesus as your savior, someone who's watching this on our YouTube channel, ongoing trust is what we need. We need to put our faith and our trust in Jesus and then continue to trust him. That's what the Christian life is about. We've seen past grace in Psalm 40, in our rescue from sin and death, and it's also minute by minute present grace that is working in our lives. It is transforming us to be more and more like Jesus, enabling us to sing that new song of praise to him and to point others to Jesus and to trust him but it's also grace to keep trusting God and keep believing his promises in the future. And this is what John Piper calls future grace. And I'm just gonna close by reading this quote for you. God's grace is ever cascading over the waterfall of the present from the inexhaustible river of grace coming to us from the future into the ever-increasing reservoir of grace that is in the past. In the next five minutes, you will, you will receive sustaining grace flowing to you from the future, and you will accumulate another five minutes worth of grace in the reservoir of the past. And that's where we can look. We can remember God's past grace to us, and we can be fueled to hope for grace in the future. So because of God's faithfulness and his steadfast love is rock solid, remember his past grace, praise him, and point others to trust in Jesus and prayerfully wait with confident hope for more grace in the future. And I'm gonna close with a stanza of an old hymn written by a woman named Louisa Stead in 1882, and it was likely written after her husband died, and it goes like this. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Will you pray with me? Thank you, Lord, for demonstrating your steadfast love to me and that while I was still a sinner, you sent Jesus to be that perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God who died for me. Thank you for your amazing grace to me. 
Thank you for saving me from the pit of death and setting my feet on the rock. Praise you for wave after wave of mercy in my life. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open our eyes to see afresh the mercy of God in our lives and point to Jesus like David does. Give me the boldness and courage to tell others about your incredible deliverance so that they too might trust in you. And Lord, may we continually approach your throne of grace boldly, confidently, pleading for more and more grace in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name, amen.